2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. As the Lord would have it, after almost three months of not being able to meet together because of the pandemic and other things that are taking place uh, that we are, by the way, continuing to contend with, our first time of regathering would fall on what is known on the church calendar as Pentecost Sunday, or in Anglican and Episcopal circles, it is called Whit Sunday. W-H-I-T, or Whitsuntide. Maybe you've seen that phrase, Whitsuntide. And it refers to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the disciples, the 120 disciples of Christ, uh, 40 days after his resurrection. It's celebrated seven weeks after Easter Sunday. So we are celebrating after the resurrection and ascension of Christ it celebrates the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as recorded in the, uh, the second chapter of Acts. Now, that being the case, what I want to do is explore from this particular text the importance of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, because that is a vital link for us. One of my favorite quotes from John Owen is that there is an infinite ocean of love that is within God, but not one drop of it can reach us except through Christ. But the other side of Owen's quote, he also says that there is nothing that is in Christ that is not communicated to us by the Holy Spirit. So therefore, every all of the mercies of God that are everything that is acceptable from us to God and every saving mercy and benefit that we have from God is mediated through Christ. But everything that is in Christ is communicated to us through the Holy Spirit. So what I want to do is, uh, before we address our text, I want to make three preliminary observations about the person and work of the Holy Spirit and largely, we're going to be looking at the, the, the common work of the Spirit. And when I say common, I mean the work of the Spirit in the life of every believer. One of the reasons that would be significant for us, especially on Pentecost Sunday, is because what people would think about on the day of Pentecost is simply speaking in tongues, whatever that, was, whatever that phenomenon was. I would argue that there's a greater work of the Holy Spirit and a common work of the Holy Spirit that is initiated with the outpouring that's given on the uh, that we uh, that's recorded in Acts chapter two. So before we look at our particular text, let's look at three things. And let me just give you a warning up front. I'm going to reference a number of scriptures. Whether or not you're able to write them all down, I don't know but I will try to be as paced as possible. So three preliminary observations about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Number one, the Holy Spirit is the agent of our regeneration. The Holy Spirit 
is the agent of our regeneration. And by regeneration, what is meant is rebirth. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you that unless one is born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And then in a couple of verses later, verse 5, Jesus also tells Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So on the one hand, Jesus says that you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And on the other hand, he indicates that to be born again is to be born of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the agent of regeneration. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, we're all familiar with what Paul says that is necessary to, uh, to, to be saved. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So unless you confess with your mouth, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is, or confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. But then Paul comes back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, and he says that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the agent of regeneration. So in, in other words, the, it's easy. Anyone can just mouth the words, Jesus is Lord. But the, the verbal confession that Jesus is Lord comes from the inner conviction that he is the Son of God and has been raised by God from the dead. And no one can have that conviction and therefore make that confession unless it's by the Spirit. So what Jesus describes in John chapter 3 is played out in our ability to, to believe at the level of the heart that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, the promised Lamb of God, slain since before the foundation of the earth. And he is, it has been raised by the power of God from the dead for our justification. No one can say that except by the Spirit. And that is what it means to be born of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the agent of our regeneration. Secondly, everyone, everyone that is regenerated by the Spirit is indwelt and sealed by the same Spirit. Everyone that is regenerated and, and declares that Jesus is Lord as empowered by the Spirit is also indwelt and sealed by the Spirit. Again, a few verses. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's what Paul says very explicitly. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, and then I'll also cite the A part of verse 14, Paul says this, In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So, Everyone, whoever, the the Holy Spirit is the agent of regeneration. And whoever has been regenerated by the Spirit has also been indwelt by the Spirit and is also sealed by the Spirit. Now the use of the term sealed, especially by Paul in the New Testament, has a particular connotation. It's a very vivid imagery that you see of, uh, you would take a king who had what they called a signet ring, which had a particular imprint. And whenever the king had had a document that he was sending out as official document and wanted wanted to impress upon the recipient that this isn't just a personal letter, it's from the king what he would do is take that signet ring and they would take the, the correspondence, wrap it, and have wax around it or a wax on it, a hot wax, and then the king would take his, his ring and put the imprint of his ring in the seal and that's what would, would bind the document. And two things, number one, it indicated that it was an official document that was a communication from the king and only authorized people were supposed to open it. So that's when it, when it talks about a sealed grave, the grave of Jesus being sealed. It had across it that which bore the, the seal of the governor. So that when you, it was, a, it was a sort of a, it was a visual reminder that this is a communication from the king. And so when Paul says that you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We have been indwelt by him and we are indwelt by him as proof that we belong to the king of glory. It is the Holy Spirit. And notice again what he says, that if you have not the spirit, then you do not belong to him. If you have not the spirit of Christ, then you do not belong to him. The sealing of the Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. That we are what God says we are because the Holy Spirit indwells us. But here's the third thing. It is the, this regenerating work and this indwelling and sealing of the Spirit that affirms that we are indeed the children of God. It is the fact that we have been regenerated by the Spirit so that we can say that Jesus is Lord. 
It is the fact that we are indwelt by the Spirit who regenerates us. That is proof that we are indeed the children of God. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We are the children of God. So here's proof that we are indwelt by the, or here's proof that we, we are the children of God, that we are indwelt by the Spirit. And here is proof that we are indwelt by the Spirit, that we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. We are not, we don't prove that we have the Spirit, that we are indwelt by the Spirit by speaking ecstatic utterances. We, we, here's proof that we have the Holy Spirit is not that we can do holy dances. Proof of the indwelling of the Spirit is not exuberance in our actions. It's not enthusiasm in our worship. I, I, I remember hearing this when, when uh, growing up as a child in church, and sometimes, you know, worship services would be more emotionally charged, and I would hear this, and I'm sure this is familiar with many of you. Boy, the spirit was high today. And the more I come to know about the Holy Spirit, and the more I come to know about the Christ that has saved me, the more offensive I find that phrase. What is proof of the empowering of the Spirit? It's not our emotional response. It's not our dancing. It's not our shouting. But it's the clarity by which we can conceive the person and work of Christ on our behalf. It's not measured by, by decibels. Proof of the indwelling of the Spirit and proof that, we, proof that we are the children of God is the fact that the Spirit indwells us and proof that he indwells us is that we know Christ. Well then, as we look to this Pauline benediction, Paul is writing, and it is a benediction, it's the end of his letter to a church to say, to, to put it mildly, the church at Corinth had their issues. He's addressed it in two full letters. First Corinthians, he deals with a set of issues. And then second Corinthians, he continues to deal with their issues. On top of their issues, they were stupidly stubborn. In fact, I would say stupidly, stupidly, sinfully stubborn. They were so ticked off at Paul because of his direct confrontation of their issues in the first letter that when Paul said he was going to come and visit them, they wanted letters of recommendation. And Paul says, are you kidding me? I planted the church. <laughs> and now I got to show ID to get in? You are my letters of recommendation. If you know Jesus, you know him because I ministered him to you. So you are my letters of recommendation. I don't, as, to, to, to paraphrase, I don't need no stinking letters of, 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 rec, of, of recommendation. You are it. So this is the congregation that he's addressing, a, a congregation that had made light of the communion services 
and have, had, had reduced it to some sort of superficial, class-conscious social gathering. This is a congregation where people were worshiping together on, on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, and then suing one another on Monday. This is a church that had looked the other way at open violations, open immorality in the congregation, and no one said anything. And so now at the end of this second letter, Paul gives them a benediction. And a benediction is the announcement of blessing. And every time people want to measure the genuineness of one's faith by their actions, Corinth is a good place to turn. Brothers and sisters, we're not Christians because of our improved morality. We're not Christians because we get it all right. What makes us Christians is what we believe. And so to this flawed congregation, many of us would look at them and say, well, look at all the stuff that's going on. And they claim to be Christian. Well, so does Paul. He claims that they are are Christians in spite of their individual and collective failure. And therefore... He closes this final letter. We most would agree that there's probably a third letter uh, that's in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But in any event, he concludes this, this second letter with a word of blessing to this congregation. And the blessing is a familiar one. He says, now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ And the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now I'm going to look at this from a particular vantage point. I would say that the clause at the end of this benediction, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, is the centerpiece and the linchpin for the weightiness of everything else that Paul says that leads up to it. In other words, going back to the quote from John Owen, that if there is an infinite ocean of love that is within God and not one drop of it can reach us except through Christ, then nothing that is in Christ can reach us except by the Holy Spirit. And that being the case, the clause, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is really the centerpiece of this benediction. And so therefore, the first thing that we want to note is that the primary, it's it's to take note that this phrase, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, is descriptive of the primary and perpetual work of the Spirit. That clause, that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you, is, is, is the primary work. And it is a perpetual work of the Holy Spirit that, in, in fact, everything else, it, it, it kind of contingents upon that. The primary and perpetual work of the Spirit until the Lord returns is to communicate to us and to convey to us the fullness of God the Father's love and the fullness and the sufficiency
sufficiency, or I'll put it this way, the fullness of the Father's love as set forth in the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the perpetual and primary work of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian may not jump and shout. Every Christian may not have this electric bolt where you just feel the need to just dance in the Lord. Some may, some may not. But every Christian, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of every Christian. Conveying and communicating to us the fullness of the Father's love as it is manifest in the grace and the merits that are in Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Let me offer again a few verses. And we want to look primarily at the words of Jesus on this one. Jesus in John chapter 14 verse 26. Talking to his disciples prior to his crucifixion. And he's, this is part of the upper room discourse. And Jesus says to them, he says, but the helper. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. The helper. He tells them earlier they were weeping when he told them that I'm going to prepare a place. And they began to weep and he tells them, do not weep. Don't don't fret, don't don't be afraid because I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And in fact, he tells them that unless he is gone, the spirit can't come. And part of the reason for and, and when the spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, doesn't say that the Holy Spirit is going to teach anything new. But all that I have told you, the spirit will illumine Now think about this. What are the things that Jesus has said? What are the things that Jesus has taught during the the, the course of his earthly ministry? Jesus has taught that the Father has loved them. In fact, John, we quoted from John where he talks about the dynamics of the regenerating work of the Spirit. It's in John chapter 3 where Jesus says, For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. That's where Jesus speaks. And so the words of Jesus is whoever the son sets free is free indeed. The words of Jesus, everything that Jesus has taught is what the spirit will explain. What the spirit will illumine. And that's what, and, and what is it that the, in, in, in fact, John is the one who records the fact that Jesus says that for him to do the will of the Father is like meat. So Jesus says that the Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. John 15, 26, one chapter over. But when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. 
when the Spirit, the Helper comes, he says that he will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And what is it that Jesus has spoken to the disciples? Salvation, grace, and love from the Father through him. Now he says in chapter 15 that when he comes, that as he, is, as he proceeds from the, the, the Father and the Son, the Spirit will bear witness about me. And then in chapter 16, one, chap, one chapter over, verse 14, here's what Jesus says about the Spirit. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So I say that in this great benediction, may the, 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 the love of uh, the grace of, of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide with you always. The communion of the Holy Spirit is to communicate to us and to convey to us the fullness of the Father's love as it is found in the merits and in the grace of Christ. That's what he's, he does. So, so we can claim that we are high in the Spirit, but we can't be high in the Spirit and low in our understanding of Christ. The activity of the Spirit is to make known to us, to declare to us what is Jesus. What, what belongs to him? That's why Paul could say the way, or writes the way that he does about Christ. The reason he could say we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus because the Holy Spirit has illumined to him that the ascended Christ is right now at the right hand of the Father and by virtue of him being there, we are there as well. That's why the writer of Hebrews says that we have a we have a forerunner who's gone behind the veil. So the Spirit declares to us the finished work of Christ as being evidence of the Father's love to us. In a moment, we'll see why that's important. But here's the second thing. Since the primary and perpetual work of the Spirit is to communicate and convey to us the fullness of the Father's love as it is found in the merits and the grace of the Son. That raises the question, how does the Spirit communicate these things? How does the Spirit communicate and convey to us the love of the Father and the grace that is in Christ? And I would argue in a threefold manner. And it's nothing new. I would say that the Spirit communicates and conveys the Father's love manifests in the grace of the Son through the ministry of the Word of God. It's through the ministry of the Word that God communicates to us or that, that God communicates to, uh, to us through the Spirit of the fullness of his love. And that's why Paul would tell the Thessalonians that he celebrates them because when I came to preach to you, you received it as you should, not as the words of men, but as the word of God. You see, brothers and sisters, it's not the subjective experiences that we have 
that determines or declares to us the love of the Father. God is ministering, shouting, and sometimes even whispering his love and his mercies and his compassion and his comforts to us through the ordinary ministry of his word. It's interesting that, and uh, and we've touched on this a number of times in our Sunday school class, that in Ephesians 4, verse 17, Paul, and by the way, in verses uh, uh, 11 through 16, he talks about, we're actually going all the way back to verse 9, he talks about Christ giving the gifts to the church, and those gifts to the church are primarily the ministry of the word through prophet, pastors, and evangelists, pastor, teachers, evangelists. And he gives this, he says, for the equipping of the saints to build them up in the knowledge of Christ and in the unity of the faith so that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And then he goes on finally in verse 17, and he now tells these Ephesian believers who have been gifted with the ministry of the word, who have been indwelt by the Spirit, he says then, don't walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk according to the darkness of their own minds. And then he comes down and he says this. He says, if so, because you, if, if you do that, then you have not learned Christ. And you've not been taught by him. Now, the, what, the thing that stands out to me there is as you have been, have been taught by him. How are we taught by Christ? Hold in mind that the Ephesian church does not come into existence until long after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. They weren't part of his earthly ministry. Jesus doesn't go to Ephesus. But when the gospel is brought to Ephesus, when the gospel is ministered to Ephesus, That is Christ gathering his flock even from that part of the world and when those that he has gifted opens up God's word and ministers it to the people, it is Christ speaking peace. It is Christ declaring the love of the Father. It is Christ declaring his grace and compassion on those that he has saved by his blood. How does the Spirit communicate and convey to us the love of the Father and the grace of the Son? And I would argue, first and foremost, through the primary ministry, ordinary ministry of the Word. The Word of law, which convicts us And the word of grace, which heals us. But here's the second means by which the Spirit, the Spirit, what what he uses to communicate, because a lot of people are waiting for that one-on-one experience. They want the Holy Spirit. They, They all want to tarry and try to replicate the example of what we see in Acts chapter 2. And as long as we're tarrying, waiting from, for some subjective experience, we are ignoring the ordinary means by which the Holy Spirit, who indwells every believer, is communicating to us the love of God the Father and the grace that is in God the Son. He does it not only through the ministry of the Word, but even through the administration 
of the Lord's table. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul is giving the orders for how the table is to be served and he rebukes the Corinthian church because they have perverted it into something other than the communion, communion with the triune God, he says this, and when you do this, as often as you do this, notice what he says, you declare the Lord's suffering until he comes. It's a, in other words, receiving from the Lord's table is not just, it's not just him feeding us with his grace, but the very act is a declaration, it's a proclamation, it's God's preaching his grace and God preaching his forgiveness as it is set forth in the gospel. As a matter of fact, I would argue that the Lord's table, because it is, it is it's depicting broken bread or broken body and shed blood, is a perfect picture of law and gospel. Because the body is broken and the blood is shed. Because that's the penalty for sin. So there's your law. But then it depicts gospel. Because Jesus says that it's broken. The body that is broken and the blood that has been shed is for you. Law, it's broken. Gospel, it's for you. Law, blood, gospel, it purges. Here's the third means by which the Holy Spirit communicates and conveys to every regenerate soul the continuing unbroken love of the Father manifested in the broken body of the Son is through the vibrant and vital connection of Christian fellowship. Yes, the Holy Spirit is at work. Even when the Christians who are engaged as being instruments to communicate God's grace, sometimes we do it knowingly and sometimes unknowingly. Sometimes we do it just out of love and sometimes we do it as we are urged ourselves to connect with individuals who are parts of the body. So that as Paul writes, as a matter of fact, to this congregation in the first chapter when he talks about going through this dark season of the soul where he despaired of life. And he says, but you prayed for me. And he indicates that God used the prayers of the saints to to nurture him and to bring comfort to him when he even despised of continuing to live. We mentioned Ephesians 4.17. But in Ephesians 4.16, Paul says this, that we are knitly joined together with each joint supplying strength to the other as each one does its part. The writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some. 
He says, but we should gather and do this. Stir one, one another up unto every good, to love and to every good work. The Spirit communicates to us and conveys to us the love of the Father and the grace of the Son every time he brings us to the communion table, every time he allows an under-shepherd or someone else to open up God's word and communicate God's continuing grace to us, that's the Holy Spirit at work. That's why at the end of the, each, each of the seven individual letters in, in Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3 to the individual churches of Asia Minor, at the end of the letter it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Because the Spirit is speaking as God's word is opened, as the Lord's table is served, and as the people of God are connected. Well, that brings us to a third and final thing. Why we have a perpetual need for the perpetual fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Why, why do we have a perpetual need for the perpetual fellowship of the Holy Spirit? Understanding that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit consists of communicating to us and conveying to us the fullness of the Father's love. So why do we need the Holy Spirit to continue to communicate and convey to us the Father's love and the Son's grace? Because external circumstances sometimes obscure the fact that we are loved right now by an all-knowing and all-powerful God. If the only thing that we had to look at is what's going on around us, then each one of us would join in with the cry that is heard so often throughout the Psalms. Where are you, Lord? Here we are again, dealing with something that we thought we'd gotten over. Where are you? Do you not love me? Unless we think then that, well, I'm going through this because something, I, I must have done something wrong. He not only points us to the fact of the Father's love, but the Spirit conveys to us the grace that is in the Son so that we don't think that our external circumstances have somehow negated the privileges of, being, of us being the children of God. Holy Spirit needs to perpetually communicate to us the unbroken love of God and the unbounded grace that is in Christ because at any given moment, as long as we live on planet earth, as long as there are cemeteries, and jails, and locks on our doors, and hospitals, and doctors, and diseases that we can't control. It's easy for us to look at those things and assume 
that God doesn't love us. So the Spirit communicates to us in those dark seasons, in spite of what we experience externally, the Spirit communicates to us the great love of God and the continuing sufficient grace of the Son in spite of what we experience externally. But brothers and sisters, it's not just the stuff on the outside that makes us wonder, does God still love us? It's the stuff on the inside. It's guilt. It's sadness. It's failures. It's disappointments. It's those things that we know about ourselves that we can't put into words that make us wonder. We know that we wouldn't love someone that felt like that, that thought like that. But God does. And the Spirit communicates to us. In the midst of a broken world, in the midst of your broken lives, that the Father loves you. And the proof of the Father's love is in the grace that's in his Son. Paul talks to the Philippians about a peace that passes all understanding. And the Spirit, the fellowship of the Spirit, connects us to that peace. So that we can sleep in the midst of the storm. And that we can walk in the midst of trial and tribulation. So that we can know that as, as kingdoms rise and fall. That we are love. Because right now. It's the Holy Spirit. It's not, it's not through a vision. It's not through a dream. The communion of the Holy Spirit connects us to the wounds of the Savior. And the wounds of the Savior are the proofs of the Father's love. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and may the love of God the Father be brought together by the communion the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and may the fellowship of the Spirit be with you always. 
So brothers and sisters, let us hear in God's word. And let us receive from God's table. And let us embrace in our connection to other blood-bought sinners that God loves us with an everlasting love. And there is nothing in this world or the world to come that will turn his love away from you. May the communion of the Holy Spirit abide with you forever. Let's pray. Gracious God,